Good morning, Restoration. Good to see everyone. Um, today's um, scripture is particularly encouraging, I think. So those who really need to hear it, I hope you can soak it in. And wherever you're at, just know that Jesus is above it and below it and certainly in it and with you. We're going to read some scripture um, from John um, and from Hebrews. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance, and through the son, he created the universe. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory in the glory of the Father's one and only Son. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is God himself, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Good morning. If we haven't met before, I'm Rob. I'm so glad you're here. And thank you, Janice, for reading that scripture. I don't know about you, but when I got, when I was listening to that, there was this moment um, where I was, I was at a wedding uh, recently. I've been at a couple weddings recently. And this particular wedding had... Um, a blubbering groom. I've never seen a blubbering groom. I've always seen, you know, I've often seen a blubbering bride, but I've never seen a blubbering groom. And this groom was blubbering. Well, his dad got up at the rehearsal to give a little talk to his son. Okay, two kids, uh, older daughter and a younger son. And you see where he gets his blubbering from. His father started talking and he was holding something, I couldn't quite tell, I thought maybe he was like me, you know, when I talk I often look like I'm holding a basketball, usually NBA size, you know, like, yes, we go here and we do this, anyway. Uh, but he was holding something a lot smaller, but I thought, oh, maybe he's just doing like my hand gestures in mini. But, turns out he had a baseball that his son gave him when he was eight years old. When his son was eight years old, not the father. And it said, my hero. And you could just see the love and the in encouragement and exhortation that this gift gave this father. And it was like, and, and I, I've known this young man for a long time, definitely has self-admitted his own problems. And the love that his father gives him is obviously unconditional. There's nothing that that boy, that young man, could do to make his dad love him anymore. 
And there's nothing that dad could do to make him love him any less. When I hear the scripture that Janice read, that's the picture I get. Is there is this father that thinks so highly of his son. And it's not on what he's done, but it's on who he is. So I want you to hold that, as Janice said, as we go into uh, this text and today's message that I think comes in the same line. So uh, I just also heard something not quite as inspiring, but, you know, take it for what it is. People who decorate for Christmas before Thanksgiving are generally happier. So if you, if you don't like it, you know, I've heard, just mind your business. It's okay. They are happier people. So, you know, Christmas is over a month away and some people are getting ready for it. Um, did you know that the Summer Olympics 2020 in Tokyo is over a year away? But many people are preparing for it. All right, so here's how Rob's brain works. Like, oh, look at that little connection. Whoop, let's go over here. So, the f- so, oh yeah, when was the last time? You know, oh, the Olympics in Tokyo? Like, when was the last time the Olympics were in Tokyo? 1964. That's crazy. I wonder what happened in 1964. Oh, a year before those Olympics, there was another golden boy. Not quite as amazing as the one that was in our scripture, but actually, this man was a shoe-in for a gold medal. 1963, Brian Sternberg looked absolutely unbeatable. He stood six foot three. He was absolutely ripping with muscles. His teammates described him as well-loved. His competitors described him as this poised champion because he won every competition he entered. He had just been voted the greatest athlete in North America because he'd set the world record for the pole vault, not once, not twice, but three times in a two-month period. Here's a video of Brian Sternberg competing at one of those times. Take a look. April 27, 1963, Washington pole vaulter Brian Sternberg made history at the Penn Relays in Philadelphia. And the cross piece is moved up to 16.5, a setting that would chalk up a world's record if he tops it. Sternberg makes it look easy. Sternberg would break his own world record two more times in 1963. In, uh, that was April. In May 25th in Modesto, California, he cleared 16 feet 7 inches, breaking his record. And then three weeks later, he shattered it again with a 16 foot 8 inch jump. Incredible. I mean, he was the golden boy for the Olympics. Now, pole vaulters need to have incredible control of their bodies, so many of them start out as gymnasts, and Brian was the same. Even though a tall guy, he competed heavily and excelled in gymnastics and often competed on the trampoline. And so the U.S. track and field team was preparing for a tour of Russia, And so Brian drove over to the training facilities near his hometown in the University of Washington on July 2nd of that year to train on that trampoline, and he describes what happens next in his book. He said, if there's ever a frightening moment in trampoline, it's when you bounce off the trampoline bed and you're going up, and at that moment you start spinning, you lose a sense of where you are in the air. 
panic takes over, and at this moment, there's, there's no good reason, like experienced trampolinists will say that, but it just did. And in those moments, he got lost, and he thought he was going to land on his hands and feet, but instead, he landed right on his neck. And he heard this crack, and everything was gone. He says, my arms and my legs were bounding in front of my eyes, and yet I couldn't feel them moving. And he was yelling, I'm paralyzed, but he couldn't, he had no lung power. It was like he wasn't able to breathe. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't move. And anxiety started punching him as he waited for the doctors. And he was only thinking about the future. He wasn't even thinking about the possibility that he would never, never walk again. Brian wasn't particularly religious, but... Um, but we might be. And the Jewish calendar, the Jewish religious calendar year is cyclical. I promise there's, there's a connection. The Jewish calendar year starts with Passover because that is when the Jews were freed from, uh, freed from slavery. So literally their months were renumbered. That was the first month. After Passover, they went to Pentecost less than two months later and they celebrated God giving the law. Um, and then uh, five months later or so, they celebrated um, what's called the Day of Trumpets, the, or the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Festival of Tabernacles. These big harvest festivals, and they, those three all took place within this two-week time period. And then later, they added Hanukkah and Purim, and then it would start over again. And so there was this cycle to the Jewish year of when they would expect, almost like our seasons. Um, but the Christian faith says, even though we experience seasons and cycles, Time is not cyclical. Our history, our faith, and our future are all moving towards a destination. So most of us are not going to have such life-altering circumstances as Brian did. But we're all going to face situations and circumstances where our past where our religion, where our accomplishments are not going to be enough for us. They are going to fail us. And we're going to need something greater in our lives. And today, I want us to consider why Jesus is greater. I mean, that's what I think the books of John and the books of Hebrews, if you've been reading along in our Messiah book, are all saying so let's just take a look at a couple stories today, because Brian's story really reminds me of the paralytic that we see Jesus meeting in the temple in John's story. It's in Luke, or it's in John chapter 5. Um, if you brought this Bible, it's on page 406. Isn't that fun? We don't get to do that very often. And if you're not, I'm pretty sure it's on the screen. But What's happened is Jesus is in Jerusalem again for one of these holy days. We're not sure what festival. He doesn't say might be Passover, but we're not told. What we are told is that Jesus is in the city, and inside the city, at a certain gate, near a certain pool of water, there are these five covered porches. Now, that's significant because this particular area of the city is called Bethesda, the house of mercy. Some hospitals are called the house of mercy. And John 5, verse 3 says that crowds of sick people the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Remember, there's no Medica. There's no Minsure. There's no uh, 
retirement home, if you will. It's the goodwill of family or the mercy of others. And so they lay down, they're blind, they're lame, and they're sick in this warm Mediterranean area where there's covered porches, where they get protection from the sun and a little protection from the elements. But they're just all sitting there. And five covered porches is a large area, probably hundreds of, you know, the, the old school term is invalids, are in this place. One of the men lying there had actually been sick for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him, he said, would you like to get well? And the man replied, I can't, sir, for, for I have no one to pick me up and put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Do you know people that have an excuse for everything? Now, Brian had a pretty legitimate excuse. In the early days of his paralysis, Brian would mentally try and get his body to move, but couldn't. He would, he would sit there and strain his brain to try and get a finger or a toe to just move ever so slightly and try and try and try. He could not do it. He would end up just from that little little attempt, that mental attempt, end up exhausted. And he would say things like, I have had it. I don't know what I'm going to do. Nothing is happening. I can't stand lying here, being tied up like this. I'm exhausted. I'm too tired to move. I can't do anything about it. This is a world champion who is immobile. I get the sense of Brian being longing to be healed. I don't actually hear a ton of excuse in this 38-year-long invalid. We don't know if he was born this way or if he experienced this later in life, and so he's quite old. But we know that 38 is really close to 40. And 40 in the Bible is a really important number. Whenever you see 40 in the Bible, something is dying, not awesome, but something new is being born, quite awesome. And so I hear a pleading in his voice. I just, I can't, sir. It's it's experience that I've sensed many times sitting in my office across from someone who is struggling with uh, a very difficult experience in their lives or maybe they're struggling with mental health. And I'm not a counselor, but I can, I've been in the situation enough where someone who is struggling with mental health is being asked to hike a mountain even though they've only hiked like hills before. And instead of hiking a hill, they're hiking a 10,000-foot mountain. But instead of getting hiking shoes and a water backpack, they are given a 50-pound bag of bricks and high heels to have to hike that mountain. There's no judgment that I can put on this 38-year invalid. Just a pleading. I can't. And so Jesus says, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. 
And in that moment, instantly the man was healed, John 5, verse 8 and 9. And he rolled up his mat and he began walking. But the miracle happened on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders see this man who's got this bag, this sleeping mat, rolled up under his arm and he's carrying it. And they say, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry your mat. Now, for us, I think we would go, ah, you're missing the point. But, but I did some study on this. Like, truly, I think this is a, initially, at least, a respectable attempt to protect the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath wasn't just a rule for these people. The Sabbath was where everything started. If you go back to, um, it's Leviticus 23, if you want to look it up. But if you go back to the story where God is giving them the festivals the first time, actually in Exodus and Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, you find that even though Passover is the first festival, everything starts with Sabbath. He starts talking about, these are the appointed feasts that you are to celebrate every year. Six days you will do your work, but on the seventh you will rest. It is Sabbath unto the Lord. It's like, wait, wait, that's just an everyday, that's just a weekly thing. No, that is a sacred festival. That is a sacred moment. And Everything started with that day of stopping and receiving. Think about it. They received peace with God and each other. They received rest. They received the the chance to worship, which they never got to do when they were slaves in Egypt. And they could celebrate. And they could just receive that and practice it. And then they could release worry. They could release stress. They could release managing everything. They could release the thought that they were in charge of the world. And this is before cell phones that could do a lot of smart things. So they wanted to make sure they could protect the Sabbath because it was so important. And so they started adding their own rules. Eventually, 39 series of rules. Now, they added things like uh, looking in a mirror is against the law. Now, some of you are too young to know this, but their, their reasoning was that if you looked in the mirror on the Sabbath and you saw a gray hair, you might be tempted to pluck it out. <laughs> right, Mike? Right? You know, you know, that happens. And that's work. I'm sorry, that was mean. I apologize. Another one was um, you couldn't carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath, but you could wear a handkerchief. So you're upstairs And you're like, man, I really want to bring this handkerchief. Handkerchief is a cloth that you use as Kleenex, in case you don't know. But uh, So you'd have to tie it on your neck so you could wear it, walk down the stairs, and then take it off so you could put it in your pocket. Because, you know, I mean, there were even debates um, in the Jewish, like, commentaries about prosthetics because they weren't, like, carbon fiber. They were wood. So if you went to sleep and you took your wooden prosthetic off and your house caught on fire, was it against the law to grab your leg and hop out or did you have to strap it on and then walk out? I mean, talk about missing the point. But if we can just go on this just a little bit longer, why is the Sabbath so important? Well, the first time the Sabbath appears in the scriptures is in the first book. It's when God creates the earth in six days, but on the Sabbath, he rests. And that is called Sabbath. That is called stop. That is called 
holy. God isn't called holy. Humans aren't called holy. Create Nothing in creation is called holy. The stop is called holy. It is set apart. And if humans were created on day six, then the first full day that they got to experience with God in the garden was Sabbath. What if you started a job and you signed your, got your signing bonus and they said, okay, so Monday, we want you to not come in. We want you to stay home. We want you to celebrate the fact that you got this job and you can start on Tuesday. And that's essentially what God is asking them to do when he gives them Sabbath on their first day. It, again, it all starts with stopping. And if you go back and you study Genesis 1, which, you know, if, you know, if we like Immerse, we, we think next fall we'll, we'll do this Immerse, but like from the beginning. And if we go and look back at the first days, it says there's evening and there's morning the first day. And then God creates on the second day. Actually, he separates on the second day. He separates on the third day. And then he f- fills on the fourth day, and he fills on the fifth day, and he fills on the sixth day. But in each of those days, if you're still with me, there's evening and there's morning the second day. There's evening and there's morning the third day. There's evening and there's morning the sixth day. There's, and then the seventh day. And guess what? There's no evening and morning. Now, like, scientifically, we know, well, yeah, there, there was evening and morning, but in the story, there's no evening and morning. So God enters his rest, which we know he's not exhausted, he's God. He's able to sit back and go, everything is as it should be. Like, you have these moments fleeting at work, right? Like, a case that works. Everything is as it should be. A season that is well done. Little kids, and they're playing. Like, you just want to go, oh, God, everything is as it should be. Well, God entered that rest on day seven. And Hebrews tells us he never left it. Now, we know that God's power sustains the universe, so he's always at work. And yet, he's always at rest. And that is why the Sabbath was so important. And that is why the Jewish leaders started harassing Jesus. So if you're not with me, you can jump back in and go, okay. John 5. You're carrying the mat. That's breaking the law. And he's like, oh, I don't know. This guy healed me. He told me to start carrying my mat. It's not my fault. It's, it's the guy who told me that I should carry the mat. Well, who's this guy? I don't know who this guy is. Well, go find him. Okay, I'll find him. Hey, Jesus, you know, stop sinning. Like, what? I thought you healed me. Yeah, but you, something worse could happen. You would be sinning. You could be not discovering what that rest is, what it's like to live in that place where you don't have to prove yourself to God. Where you can receive his love, not based on what you've done, but based on just who you are. The fact that he loves you. Something greater might happen. And the Jewish leaders, here we go, Jewish leaders, John 5, verse 17, they started harassing Jesus because he was now breaking the rules. And Jesus said, hey, my father is always working, and so am I. God's always at work, I'm always at work. And yet, I'm always at rest. And the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. 
because he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his Father, thereby making himself equal with God. See, Sabbath, I mean, the more I study it, the more I'm like, wow, that is just so important. Like, the purpose was to elevate God in their lives. To stop and see and worship and celebrate with each other and with God. And yet, it's still so easy to miss. I was talking to someone uh, who's in real estate, and she said, um, like, yeah, 24-7, I'm always available. And I said, oh, Patricia, like, it's obvious that you love Jesus. How do you stop? And she goes, well, that's a really good question. Which sometimes mean you've asked a question that I'm not sure I want to answer, so I'll tell you that it's a really good question, and then, you know, I'll try and distract you so that I don't have to answer. And she did, but um, we can talk about it later if it's important. See, I think Jesus wants us to see that in his story, he is greater than religion. That's what John is saying all throughout his book. And when Hebrews starts, it says that Jesus is equal with God. He's the ultimate fulfillment of God's love and God's mercy. Janice read it. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the power of his command. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the imprint of his nature. It's like if, if God is the sun of our solar system, then Jesus are the rays of light coming off of the sun. Inseparable. It's like if there was a way to make an exact copy of Xerox, Xerox could somehow duplicate perfectly. That's what the exact imprint means. Then Hebrews just jumps in and says, and Jesus, God's son, is greater than the angels and all the messages they gave. And so he gives this warning, like, you should pay attention to God's greatest messenger. That's Jesus. All the previous messages from God through these angels, they're not as important as the one that came through his son. And then he, then he goes into saying that Jesus is greater than Moses. They're, they're one of their most important characters in their history, in their story as a people. And yet Moses did not get to enter that rest and peace of the promised land. And if he didn't, and the people had to wander for 40 years because they didn't get it. How much more do we need to listen and worry and want, not worry, but, but make sure that we don't rebel against it and against God? Because those people did rebel against the rituals and the festivals and, and the religion. All those things that point to who God is if we see them, but so easily just degrade into things that we have to do. And so, John continues that more and more. We won't go into each one. Um, he, he feeds 5,000, and it's better than the manna from heaven in their story. He um, says that he's the light of the world and the life-saving water during the festival of tabernacles. It's, it's in John 7 and 8. It's really beautiful. Then in John 10, he talks about Jesus being greater than Hanukkah, this festival of dedication where Judas Maccabee set himself 
up against the, and rebelled and took these people and, and captured the temple again and dedicated it back to God. And, and Jesus said, no, no, I'm actually the one who's set apart, who's not going to do it through revolt, who's actually going to through it through giving his life. And Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus is greater than the priests and he's greater than the sacrifices. And it's beautiful, but it's so easy to miss. Jesus is this ultimate sacrifice who does what no religion can do. So what's the point? Well, you know, I think Gallup is this great research corporation. Gallup found that in the 1950s and 60s, 70% of Americans said religion was very important to their everyday life and that attending worship services with the community weekly was also important. And so what they were saying, potentially, is that this isn't just a box I check. This is something that's a part of my life. I pray about my decisions. I consider God in my everyday life. I spend time with him. I look beyond myself. I wonder how I can be involved in his kingdom and with his people. 70%. In 2007... 56% of Americans said that religion was important to my everyday life and attending worship services monthly was an important part of that. And then in 2018, just 11 years later, 37% of Americans said religion is an important part of my life and attending worship services regularly was a part of that. And yet for the first time, at least in Gallup's, American history, 37% said that was important. 38% checked, eh, no religion. No religious affiliation. Now, spirituality remains quite high. I'm very hopeful, but this is showing us that religion is dying. Religion cannot save us. That's what Hebrews says, that's what John would say. I think that's what Gallup is even trying to say because think about it, religion just tries to make us feel guilty. Religion at its best shows us like, here's the standard and you can't meet it. And so, you know, we can offer, uh, you know, someone said, we can offer drive-by guiltings, but I, I don't need that. I already know, like, that I am nowhere near perfect. I don't need to see the giant curtain where God is on this side and I'm on this side. Or I was talking to someone yesterday uh, in not trying to offend the Catholic Church, but the little tiny curtain where the priest is on one side and I'm on the other side and I have to confess. I already know that there's a separation between the holy God and the unholy me. I think religion just makes us feel depressed or discouraged or full of shame. Or, just as evil, it does the worst. It does the opposite. And we get the standards, and all of a sudden we see, like, oh, I can meet the standard. Oh, look, I'm doing all the things. Look at that. I'm so much better than those people. And we we compare, and we we judge, and we get superior, and we feel better about ourselves, and we get full of self-righteousness, and we feel superior. Religion, at its best, offers You can be full of shame, or you can be full of superiority. Maybe it's good that religion is declining. 
Religion will not save us. Like reading the Bible. We've been doing this immerse. This is a good thing. It can teach us how to walk with God. It can teach us how to live in the Spirit. It can teach us how to grow in our faith. But it can't give us a relationship with God. Bible can help me understand who God is and what he's like. But it can't make me spend time with God or fall in love with him. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus is greater than religion. He is greater than our failures and our accomplishments and all of our past history. And I invite you to see that today. Five years after Brian's accident, remember Brian, the pole vaulter that was going to go to the Olympics and win the gold medal? Well, five years after his accident, almost a thousand people were gathered in an auditorium. The lights went dark, and a movie screen flickered, similar to the movie that we saw. Black and white image showed a towering six foot three, rippling with muscle athlete vaulting over this pole and breaking a record. Thunderous applause, not only on the video, but also in the auditorium. And then the curtains pull back and there's an empty chair sitting in the middle of the auditorium. And a massive football player starts limbering out, carrying something, and people see these limp arms and legs swaying and a head kind of bobbing as the football player, massive lineman, carries this, this man, sets him in this chair, takes a belt, straps it around his waist so he doesn't slide out, puts some pillows on the sides so he doesn't flop over, and then as he's gently leaning, sets a microphone right next to Brian's mouth. And Brian begins to tell the impressive story of his past. How great it was. The accomplishments over his short time as an athlete were more than most athletes get in their entire lifetime. He showed pictures on his house wall of past treasures, trophies and medals and plaques filled this whole line. There were dozens of letters and photos from fellow athletes. There was even a get, this is kind of creep, a get well message from President JFK, John F. Kennedy, before, just before he was assassinated. All of these accomplishments on his wall, his whole past. However, when Brian got to the central point of his talk, he said, I never felt like a winner until I put God in the center of my life. I never felt like a winner. How might you say it? I joke around and say, you know, the best part of turning 30 was like being okay with myself, and the best part of turning 35 was being able to tell people I was okay with myself. And, and, and now I'm over 40 and I'm still like, okay, is that really still true? I never felt like myself until I put God in the center of my life. This huge, accomplished athlete, I never felt like a winner 
until I put God in the center of my life. And he shared the pain of being this vibrant athlete to this quadriplegic in an instant, his career being cut short and the horror of being trapped in this body. And then he shared about the visitors that would come in, the athletes, the coaches, the famous, famous people, the teammates, and they would come in and they would wish him well. And then there's this one girl, this young woman who he actually remembered from elementary school who would come in and say, why aren't you smiling? Well, can't you tell? Like, it's the one thing I could do, but I don't want to do. Why not? What, what about a faith? I have no faith. And she would come back the next day. And she would say, hey, Brian, why aren't you smiling? I already told you. What about faith? What about putting Jesus in the center of your life? I think that would change your faith and it would change your life. Day after day for weeks. After a couple weeks, she stopped coming for a couple more. You know, that's a lot to think about, but that's all Brian had is a lot of time to think. She returned two weeks later and Brian was smiling. I took your challenge. I talked to God. I put Jesus in the center of my life and I'm still stuck in this body, but I cannot believe what a difference this is making. The conversations that I'm having with people are completely different now. The way I look at the visitors and the staff in this hospital is completely different. And I, I need to know what else I can do And she smiled and she said, there's nothing else you need to do. Jesus is greater than your past. He's greater than any religion that you could put yourself into. He's greater than all of your accomplishments. You just need to accept and live into that. Despite all that had happened to Brian, all of the accomplishments, he said, the best thing that's ever happened to him was putting Christ first. He lost a lifetime of of adulation and of accomplishments and of fame, but he got something far greater. He experienced forgiveness with God, eternal life in the present and the one to come, and a fact that his identity was no longer tied to his accomplishments. And it was no longer trapped by his past. See, I believe that some of you today need to know that truth. Like you may not be paralyzed physically, but you have a paralysis. You feel trapped by something or someone. Maybe it's even your own past. And you want to break free from it, but you're just not sure how. It's like, you're like Brian in that bed trying to go, oh, if I could just move. And there's not any mental taxing that you need to do. It's a surrender that you need to make. Say, God, I want you first in my life. I don't want to be defined by my past. I don't want to be defined my accomplishments. I want to be defined by being your son. I want to be defined by being your daughter. Because Jesus is far greater than anything else.
you pray with me? Jesus, you truly can change anyone's life, including a quadriplegic, a, a, a paralyzed person that we see in your word, in John, who gets up and walks. And many celebrate, but some protest. And you change someone's life like Brian Sternberg. And from reading his story, God, I know that Brian is dancing in streets of gold with you when he passed away six years ago. And he has no more pain, he has no more trapped. But God, because he had relationship with you, I believe that he was no longer trapped, even though he had to be carried into stadiums and auditoriums. He was not held back because he'd received forgiveness and eternal life. And God, we want that in our lives. So Holy Spirit, show us where you, Jesus, need to be greater in our lives, where we are putting something from our past or something from our religion above you, and we need to surrender it to you. God, change us, move us. Give us the courage to be vulnerable, to pray, to surrender, and to receive. Jesus, we know that you made a way for us through your life and your death and your resurrection. And it is enough for all of us.